Roles of Men and Women in the Church, Part 1 The ninth talk in a series entitled, What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on May twentieth, two 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. This morning, we're continuing in our series where I've been trying to address various questions that have come up, tend to come up about, so what do, what do we think about things around here? Why do we do things the way we do? Last week, uh, I introduced the topic of the, the roles of men and women and talked a little bit about um, the basic teaching in the Bible having to do with uh, going back to the creation account, looking at what happened with Adam and Eve, and seeing what Paul does with that, particularly as that applies to marriage. These are tough questions. These are particularly difficult passages to work with. Today I want to talk about the question of the roles of men and women in the church. I just want to say as we start into this, I want to be really clear about where I'm coming from and what I, how I think about what I'm doing this morning. Uh, first of all, as I say, these are very hard passages. And I'm not here to say, I have put this all together and here's the word from on high. Uh, the purpose of this series is to give you an idea of why we operate the way we do, how we think about things around here. In my mind, the coming to an understanding of some of the passages that we have to talk about today um, is very much a work in, quest uh, a work in progress. Um, we have, I think I mentioned last time that uh, a number of years ago, we on the staff at the study center took on kind of an extended study over a year's period of time looking at some of these passages, trying to come to terms with what was going on in them. And I think we made some progress in that time. Uh, there are still some hard questions, though, about some of these passages. Uh, so I just warn you this morning, I think there are times when I can have a clear picture clearly articulated, even even with a strong exhortation and a certain amount of, you know, inspiring us all, including myself, to kind of pursue the gospel and go for it. This is not one of those kind of mornings. This is one of those kind of stumbling around saying, well, here's what we got, what are we going to do with it kind of mornings. So I'm just preparing you in advance for that's the sort of thing we're doing here. Part of the reason I'm doing it is because I want people to understand what we understand at this point, so that you understand what dictates the way we do things. And also, I do want us as a church to take the Bible seriously. I mean, the Bible is saying something about this stuff, and we're trying to come to terms with what that is. Now, at the same time, it seems to me that it's important for us to recognize that the Bible centers on certain fundamental questions that each one of us as individuals face about what we believe, what we're pursuing, what we think life is about, who we think we are, who we think God is, and so on. This question is not on the order of those kinds of questions. If anything, what the issue of what the Bible says to men and to women does confront us with is one of those places in life where we are working out our own attitude toward who God has made us to be. And that is an important thing. But uh, the fundamental importance of it, I think, is that, that each of us would be willing to be pursuing the question, who did God make me to be, and am I in rebellion against that, or am I actually willing to be grateful for the life that God has given me? That's an important question that both men and women equally face, and I think 
what's clear in the biblical teaching on this stuff is that this is one of those arenas where we sort that out. But there are a number of things that are not clear, I think, in this. So, I don't know how far I'm going to get this morning. There are a lot of things to talk about. I don't want to belabor this, but at the same time, I want to try to make clear what the issues are. So, we'll just see how far we get. We need to start out, first of all, part of the reason that there's a lot to talk about is that if we're going to start talking about the roles of men and women in church, I guess we'd better talk a little bit about church. I mean, what do we mean by church? What sort of roles are we talking about? Um, in the Bible, the word church basically is a word that means assembly. It is a group of people coming together. Sometimes the word church is used to refer to the entire assembly of those who belong to Christ. It is the church of God. It is the assembly of people that assemble together throughout time and history, those who are all joined together as followers of God, followers of Christ. Sometimes we refer to that group as the body of Christ. Uh, through an analogy that Paul develops that, that it is as if we are all different parts of his body serving a different function but all working together toward one end ultimately. So there's that concept of church, that idea that there is just this assembly. It is those people, and we don't know who this group is. It's those people who genuinely belong to God. The Bible sometimes, though, and we more often use the word church to refer to a particular group of people that come together to follow God, to follow Christ, like this group of people here. You're very familiar with the fact that we call this place the church, and I do that all the time. Say, well, you know, the church does this, meaning us, this group here. When it comes to groups like that, as Paul went around and founded various churches, that is, what he did is he preached the gospel, he called people to believe it, a group of people did believe it, and there they were, in Corinth or in Ephesus or wherever. Here are a group of people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What do we do next? What does it mean that we all believe this stuff together? Well, naturally enough, those people who believe this together join together to encourage each other, to exhort each other, to help each other, to go on this journey together to a certain extent. Because those people who share this belief and are looking for this hope have something profoundly important in common, something more important than other human relationships. In many ways, the relationship that we have as fellow believers in Christ is a more significant relationship because it is a relationship built around the most fundamentally important things. It's a relationship that's going to last. Marriages don't last through eternity, we're told. But our relationship as people of God will. It lasts for eternity. So there's something very significant here, that a group of people would come together and say, we're in this together, we want to understand together, we want to help each other understand better, we want to encourage each other to follow the truth, and so on. In a group such as we are, it is natural that a, there would be a need for a certain amount of leadership, a certain amount of somebody attending to certain things. The apostles speak of a group they call elders or overseers. The concept of an elder was very common in this culture. The elders are those older men who have the responsibility for a larger community. The Sanhedrin, the, the group of rulers in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, they were referred to as the elders. In a synagogue where you would have a group of Jews coming together to read the scriptures and hear exhortations from the scriptures and so on, the leader, the leadership group of a synagogue would have been referred to as the elders of the group. So it was a common word. It was a word that was in common use. What sort of a picture do we get of what is it 
that an elder does in the group of believers. We don't have a lot of evidence regarding this, but we see a few passages where Paul and others give some exhortations as to what an elder ought to be, what sorts of people they ought to be, and we get a few clues there as to what sort of thing he pictured. First of all, as I said, they're overseers. They exercise oversight over a group. They're sometimes referred to as shepherds with the responsibility of shepherding the flock. Um, Titus, Paul says to Titus about these elders that an elder should be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay, so a person in this situation, according to what Paul says here, ought to personally know and believe the gospel. It needs to be a person who understands the gospel and is personally committed to it. Somebody who can exhort others to believe that gospel and someone who can refute the contradictions and perversions of that gospel that come up. So this overseer is, is responsible to understand the gospel, to proclaim that gospel, and to protect the gospel against perversion in a group of people. If, if the truth is not being spoken, it is respons- the responsibility of the overseers to correct that and make sure that, that to the best of their ability, the gospel is not being perverted. At one point, a little later in 1 Timothy, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we seem to get the picture that in Paul's mind, the way he had things set up, the elders are those who have this general oversight and responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the group that the gospel is being proclaimed and and that the truth is being preserved. And there are some among the elders who seem to be particularly called out to work hard at preaching and teaching. Um, In the book of Hebrews... Uh, we are exhorted to obey our leaders as those who keep watch over your souls. And as I tried to argue last week, I don't think that is a picture of the responsibility over the individual souls of each person. I mean, each one of us is going to stand or fall before God based on the personal choices that we make. The person who is in oversight over a group, in a group of Christians, does not have the authority to tell them what to do or how to live their lives or who to marry or any of that kind of stuff. As I said, individuals have the choice to make that those decisions themselves. But the overseers are those who are keeping watch. They're like watchmen. They're they're on the they're on the wall looking to see are are the enemies creeping in. Is the is error replacing truth? Are we, are we saying what needs to be said? Are people being exhorted to follow the basic and fundamental truths of the gospel, or are we wandering off in a different direction? I think it's that kind of keeping watch over your souls, making sure that the, the souls of the people in the group are being fed in an appropriate way, that they're hearing what is true and, and being warned against uh, going away from God. So something like that, I think, this group that are referred to as the overseers or the elders. Then, there's also a group that the apostles refer to as servants, and the Greek word is diakonos, and we get the word deacon from that. Um, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros, from which we get the word presbytery. So we talk about Presbyterians are those who really emphasize an elder-run system of government. And likewise, deacons come supposedly from the idea in the Bible that there are those who are referred to as diakonoi, as servants. 
Now, it's tricky when we come to this because we tend to, if, we, if I say the word deacon, immediately you get in mind a picture of an office that somebody has been elected to with responsibilities and so on. But most of the time, this word diakonos is just used to refer to someone as a servant. It's not necessarily someone who has the office of deacon. Um, for example, the apostles sometimes are referred to as diakonoi. Well, it's clear if we're going to think about the office that they fill, they're not the deacons. If we want to, if we want to say there's this office of deacon, the apostles were not deacons, but they were servants. And anyone who takes on the role of being a servant is a servant, is a diakonos. Now, so when it comes to elder and servant, the, these two kinds of roles that we find referred to in the Bible, should we see these as some sort of an office with official duties and qualifications? Well, that's one of those questions that we're sort of trying to sort out around here. You've probably heard Jack say before, um, if you haven't, I'll tell you, that he describes himself as an ecclesiastical anarchist, um, which is probably a pretty fair description, I think. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And I think I'm probably not far behind him, but as is often the case around here, um, I, I am the... Between the two of us, I'm the more conservative of the two of us. That's not a good thing, necessarily. Um, you'll find that on a number of issues, I just have trailed Jack by a couple of years. I'm about five years behind, usually. You catch me five years later, and I'm, okay, I'm, uh, all right, I, I, I'll buy it. And then, uh, unfortunately, what often happens is by the time I get there, though, he's moved on to something else, so... It's really good when we every now and again we can agree on something. No, it's, I'm exaggerating. We on the on many many things we agree wholeheartedly. It's, it's these kind of issues around the edges that where it gets a little more. It's harder to, to sometimes to come to consensus. So ecclesiastical anarchist Jack. So it's a viable question. It's one that Jack has raised around here. How much should we think of there being you know, offices and official roles and that kind of stuff in the church? Well, here's how I think about that right now, and I'm just speaking for myself. It seems to me, in one sense, it's a pretty simple idea. In a group of people who join together to do something, and particular, in particular, a group of people who come together because we're committed to a set of beliefs, we're trying to follow the truth, we know that the truth is an elusive thing to find in this world because we are evil people who are inclined to wander off into error. We need to encourage each other in that. It's pretty simple to think that a group of people like that would benefit from and need people who are giving their attention to looking out for the welfare of the group, those who are mature in the faith that we are trying to pursue together, those who have some understanding of the gospel that we all are trying to understand better. It only makes sense that there would be people in that role. Um, and it would also make a great deal of sense that a group of people have, um, the group has tasks that need to be done. As a group, there are things we do together, and in as much as we do things together, we need to have people who serve us, people who help to make those things happen. It seems to me that's what we find in the Bible, that it's pretty straightforward. Um, we need people to have a spiritual oversight for the group and people to help make things happen. Um, were these people appointed to these tasks? Somewhat. We do see that somewhat in the Bible. And when it comes to elders, Paul appointed people to be overseers in the churches that he founded. Now, the place where I think we can legitimately ask a question and that you need to understand about the kind of place we are here is, 
people have run with that, the picture that Paul appointed elders, therefore the apostles appointed elders, therefore we need to have someone with an authority like the apostles to appoint elders, therefore we need some sort of system of government where there is an overarching authority that appoints the elders for churches the way Paul appointed those elders, therefore either we have a pope or we have a presbytery, uh, one way or the other. You have the the Bible, it would be argued there, is mandating that we have a top-down ordination of leadership. It doesn't seem to me that the Bible is actually explicitly saying anything like that. Of course Paul appointed the elders. What are you going to do? Paul comes into a group of people who have never heard the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. He's going to stay there for a while and teach them, try to get them up to speed with what the gospel's doing, and then he's going to leave. Of course, who's better qualified to decide in this group? So who are the mature people here who I'm going to leave in charge of things than Paul? But is that to say that it always needs to be some outside authority that comes along and dictates who's going to be in leadership in a group of people? I don't see why that would be the case. The idea is that what Paul is concerned with, what he wants to see happen, is that there are people with a certain quality who are in leadership. They believe the gospel They are firmly and maturely committed to that gospel, and they are able to thus exhort others and and guard against error in a group of people. That's what he's looking for. I think too often in the church we have mistaken the importance of the quality of people who ought to be serving a certain role with the idea that there's this slot that has to be filled. We've got the right system of government. We've got elders and we've got deacons and we've put it all together. But I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience in the various churches that I have been involved in is that it has been rare that in the official roles that the church has set up that there have been people in those roles who are qualified to fill them. Most of the elders that I have run across in my experience were there because it's kind of like the way you appoint people to a board of a of an institution. You get those people who are successful in business. I mean, if you're going to have somebody on a board, you want to have people who've got money, people who can bring in the money. And a lot of times, that's what we end up doing in church situations. Now, does, do we always do that? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I think we have gotten into this mindset that it is the organization that somehow we exist to fill the slots in and serve, where I think the biblical picture is quite the other way around. The idea is we are a group of believers who are seeking to follow the truth, and inasmuch as that's true, we need to have people who are capable of exercising some leadership and and exhorting us, teaching us, uh, encouraging us, being on the lookout for what goes on. It seems to me that it's that simple as in what the Bible's talking about. When it comes to the servants, the diaconoi, were they appointed? Were these official roles? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. What's often given as the model for this is that you may remember in the book of Acts, if you've been around when Jack has been taking us through Acts, there's this point at which you have a bunch of people living in Jerusalem who are staying there because they had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they heard the gospel, they stayed to hear the teaching of the apostles. But at a certain point, there becomes this dissension between the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and the Hellenistic Jews, those who had come from outside of the the area there, those who were living in more Greek-influenced cultures, and their perspective on how things ought to happen wasn't, uh, they weren't seeing eye to eye, and it had to do with the question of who was getting the distribution of food. I mean, you got all of these people there, 
they had worked out some sort of a system to make sure that everybody who was getting fed, all these people who were staying in Jerusalem, but it was getting to be a mess. And the apostle said basically, look, you know, it would make sense to appoint somebody to look into this, to take care of the food distribution, the waiting on table stuff here, because, and I think just very simply, when you look at in the scheme of things, it probably would make more sense for Peter to spend his time teaching and and studying more what the gospel is all about and proclaiming his understanding, his God-given understanding of what Jesus had taught and so on, than for him to spend his time administering the food distribution. So, seven guys are appointed to be basically guys who wait on tables. These are the guys who are responsible to wait on everybody and make sure that the food is distributed uh, fairly and so on. Stephen was one of those. The, the Stephen who was killed, he was one of the waiters on tables. Now, these, this role was seen to be a very important one, however, um, the men who are chosen for this role are all described as being mature, godly, filled with the Holy Spirit type men. So it's not that even though it's waiting on tables that it was an insignificant thing, it was a genuine service to the group. So there's an example where there are diakonoi who are appointed. They are actually, here is a job to be done and we're going to appoint these seven guys to fill this role. And we do see Paul, when he describes elders and servants, those who serve, he says of the servants, the diakonoi, and let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. I serve as deacons, that's a translation. Let them serve, I think is how we should translate it, if they are beyond reproach. Seems to imply that at least in a general sort of way, that if somebody is going to take on a significant role in serving the church, that they ought to be a person of, of integrity and character, and that you ought to make sure that that's the case before they're in that role. So there is a certain amount of, yes, this is a role that you need to watch out for. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are described as servants who just serve, and we don't have any evidence at all that they were appointed to a particular office. They just helped the church. So, it seems to me here then, as we look at the roles to be played in the church, that it makes sense not so much to emphasize structure or positions or slots to be filled or, hey, who's going to get the perks of having the authority and being in charge or anything like that, but it's just the idea that as a group of people who are pursuing a common goal, and that goal is very significant. It has to do with personal decisions that we want to exhort each other to make, to know and follow the truth. Um, that in a situation like that, you want to have mature people who are looking out that the purposes of the group are being f fulfilled, and responsible people, people of character who are helping take care of the kinds of tasks that need to be taken care of along the way. Um, are there qualifications to do these offices? Well, certainly character is a qualification. That's what most of these passages that talk about eldership and being a servant and all of that, they center on Paul saying, I want these to be people who know the gospel, who are personally committed to it, who are people of integrity, people who are not out to make money off of it, who are, who are not in it for sordid gain, people who are not argumentative and contentious, but people who are compassionate and hospitable, who are concerned about other people. Um, that's, those are the kinds of people he wants to be elders. And those who are servants, he is concerned that they are people of character that they are people that can be trusted in the role that they're taking on. Okay. So, 
we have this general picture, I think, that seems pretty inescapable to me, that these are the kinds of roles that ought to be fulfilled. Um, so, now, in talking about qualifications, the question comes up. Do you have to be a guy in order to do this stuff? Well, let's start to look at the evidence, see how far we can go to, to sort out what would this look like. People point to the precedent of the fact that when Jesus appointed 12 apostles, all of them were men. I think that that probably is significant. Um, it's kind of hard. It is harder to, to dictate what the principles are that we ought to live by when you look at what a certain person did in a certain situation. Because if the rest of the Bible were to indicate to us that there is absolutely no distinction at all in the roles that men and women ought to play in life in any way, shape, or form, then we would look at the fact that he appointed 12 apostles, as 12 men as apostles, and say, well, he must have had his reasons that were related to the particular cultural situation in which he found himself and... That doesn't, that's not really binding on us. On the other hand, if we find in the rest of the Bible that there is a distinction in the roles that men and women play to some extent, then it might make sense that Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles. But you see how hard it is. Just by that fact itself, it depends on what you bring to it as to what you're going to conclude from it. Everybody looks at that and goes in different directions depending on what it is you think is true to begin with. So those sorts of precedents are sort of hard to know what to do with. As I say, I am inclined to think that it is significant, but that's mostly because of what I think the rest of the Bible is saying, which is also difficult to understand. There's the precedent of the deacons, the seven diaconoi that were appointed in Acts. They were seven men too. Um, on the other hand, if we're going to look at precedents, we do see pictures like Priscilla and Aquila, married couple, who are always mentioned together, and usually her name is put first, if there's any significance to that, and they're described as playing an active role in Paul's ministry. They ministered with him. They went to Ephesus. They found Apollos. They taught him more accurately the way of the gospel. It's not that Aquila, the husband, is described as having done those things. Priscilla and Aquila together are described as having done those things. And then there has been much, much, much... I, we couldn't even begin to imagine how many trees have died in the service of things written about one verse in Romans. Phoebe, who is a diaconos of the church which is at Centuria. And the question is, what does that mean? Is that just one of those generic sort of, she's a person who serves the church? She has a servant's attitude and is always helpful with whatever needs to happen around the church? Or is she a deacon? Like I say, it all depends on where you're coming from as to what you do with a verse like that. See, from my perspective, deacon is not this hard and fast sort of office to be fulfilled in the first place. So it's actually sort of a non-question for me. I mean, it does, however, show us that Phoebe, whether she had an official office or not, and from my perspective, who cares? Phoebe filled a role. She was a servant in the church at Centuria. I mean, whether she was an official in an official role or not, I don't know. I suspect probably not, but I don't really know. It's hard to say. But clearly, she is a person who gave herself to furthering the interests of the group of people who were there. So those sorts of precedents show us that there are certainly significant roles for women to play among believers. That brings us then to those big passages. And probably most of you know the passages I'm talking about. These are hard passages to talk about. Let's start with the, the mother of all uh, hard passages having to do with women's roles in the church. First Timothy 2. 
Um, now, I'm just telling you, I, I warned you in advance. I, I'm not here to tell you th- this is what this passage is doing. I've made a certain distance in my own mind, but this is a very difficult passage to put together. Um, first of all, in 1 Timothy 2, we have this interesting connection between the first eight verses of 1 Timothy 2 and then 9 through um, 15, I guess it is. Chapter 2 is divided into two parts. We start out saying, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. That's his first exhortation. And he concludes it with, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Which leads us then to nine, likewise, women. We move from this exhortation for men to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, which is the culmination of the first section of First Timothy, which seems to focus on men. And then in verse 9, we switch to women. And he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, and so on. And we'll look at that in a second. So... Our first question is, if we're trying to put this together, what is the connection between these two? He has a connection in his mind. He goes from one to the other. Is it merely, okay, I said something about the men, so I guess I ought to say something about the women? I suppose that's possible. I think, though, that it's stronger than that. And at this point, I would understand the the thing that has joined these two together in Paul's mind to be this word that is translated quiet in both sections. In the first section, he says, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And down below, he says, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. My first point would be that I don't think that the word quiet in the second part, when it's talking about women, is intended to say that they're supposed to to not speak. Now, we have another passage to talk about regarding that issue, but here, at least, I think we can say the issue is not that they not speak. This is a Greek word which when it talks about quietness, the kind of quietness that it's talking about, it can have to do with just being quiet, but it doesn't essentially mean silent. The quietness that we're talking about is it is the quietness of a spirit that is at rest. The quietness of someone who, who in instead of shaking my fist and fighting against the situation, I am quiet. I am at peace. I am content. That's what this word tends to mean. And my understanding would be that in the first section, there is a problem that Paul is addressing when he urges prayers to be made on behalf of all men, that this is not just an admonition that's coming out of the blue. I say, hey, I want you all to pray for everybody. When he goes in this section to great lengths to say, look, Jesus died for all men, not just Jews, but Gentiles alike. This is, this is, Jesus is not exclusionary, and neither should you be. And so his conclusion is, at the end, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The problem that he is speaking to is that there is wrath and dissension among them. The men are, there. and we won't go into all the details here, but we could try to put together the picture that he's speaking into, the problem as he sees it, and what it is he wants them to do. He wants them... Instead of there being wrath and dissension, he wants them to live lives of quietness. Lives where they are not at war 
against their circumstances and against each other, but rather they are in submission to what is and they are seeking the welfare. They are praying for those that they otherwise would be inclined to see as their as their opposition, as their enemies. I think that's what's happening in the first section. Now, we'd have to go through it to, in detail to show you why I think that. But I think something like that is happening. And then likewise, the women are encouraged to, to be in quietness here, which I think is the same sense that he's used it up above. He is calling them to be, rather than to be fighting, aggressive, resisting the circumstances in which they find themselves, that they, he is encouraging them to be in quietness. And I think that is the thing that ties these two things together, that the men and the women each, in their own circumstances, have circumstances against which they are t- tempted to fight, against which they are tempted to use strategies to try to get their way, to try to bring about what they would like to see happen. And in each of these situations, he is urging them to be in quietness, I think. Now, what then is he saying to the women here? Um, He starts out by saying, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Why does he start with that? Why does he start about the way women dress? Maybe I'm pushing this too far, but I notice that Peter does the same thing. He, he talks about how women ought to dress with a very similar sort of exhortation And it is also in a context that has to do with calling them to be submissive, to submit to certain circumstances. The opposite of what he's describing here would be, rather than dressing modestly and discreetly with proper clothing, would be to be dressing immodestly and indiscreetly with improper clothing and with an emphasis on... He says braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments with an emphasis on being physically attractive. I think both Paul and Peter in making this exhortation are not just concerned, it's not just a dress code. It's not just, oh no, I'm sorry, that was a little immodest. You need to wear something a little more modest next time. But rather he's addressing fundamentally an attitude because, now, I don't know, you may think I'm crazy and, and I don't mean to offend anybody or anything, but it seems to me, if you look at the history of the world and the way things work, that in general, that one of the means that women have used to maintain, to try to create for themselves a certain situation of power in a world that is often dominated by men is the way they dress that basically to dress in a, an immodest and provocative way is a strategy that women have taken throughout of modesty. But it is, it is an issue of seeing my goal not to be provocative and enticing in a way that I can use that, but rather to be godly, that I am seeking to be a person who is following God. I am concerned about what God thinks of me more than I am concerned about what men think of me, basically, is what it comes down to. I think that's what he's getting at here, that there's more at stake than just just a statement about, I'd like you to wear your, you know, let's button one more button or something like that. I could be wrong, but that makes a lot of sense to me in both of those passages. Um... Okay, we move on then to the big one, the one we're talking about here. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain in quietness. Okay, well, 
you know, if you thought trees were dying over the passage, one verse from Romans, these, these two verses um, hold, you know, I am sure that we have less oxygen in the atmosphere now because of those two verses. If Paul had known the impact on the environment that he was going to have just by writing those two verses, I don't think he would have done it. Um, I mean, this is... In, in my studies on this, when we were looking into this before and, and in other studies on this, I mean, there's a lot that you can find to read out there about this. Books and books and articles and journals, and there's a ton. Boy, there has been a lot argued over this passage. Um, here's what I understand so far. Here, here's what has guided the way we think about, in a nutshell, this passage here. The question is, does Paul mean this or not? Does he mean what it sounds like it says? And if he does, how do you practice it then? What does it look like? Um, Here's the picture that I would have at this point. I see Paul as connecting the ideas of teaching and exercising authority here. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That what he is picturing is the kind of teaching that has to do with the exercising authority over the group. In other words, he's talking about the role of overseer, the role of elder. Those who are in the position of being overseers of a group, as we've seen, are basically in the life of the group serving the role of proclaiming the message that the group is is about. They're the ones who are getting up and saying, this is the gospel, this is what we are committed to as a group, and they're the ones who are correcting error. They're the ones who are stepping in to say, no, you've heard this kind of stuff going around, but that's not true. This This is what... This is what we as a group are about. It seems to me that what Paul is saying is that he does not allow a woman to be in that role, to, to have that kind of authority over the group. And in particular, over the group, a group being a mixture of men and women. Now, Can you find people who will argue against what I'm saying here? Yes, you can. Will you find people who argue that the word that's translated exercise authority shouldn't be translated exercise authority, it should be translated something else? Yes, you will. Um, All I can say is I've read those articles, I've been down that road, and I'm just not convinced. I don't think they make uh, a good case. I think when Paul says he doesn't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he means he doesn't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That translation captures pretty much what it is he means. But, as I say, the the role that I believe that he's describing is that role of overseer. The way we have practiced this up till now is to make a distinction between the kind of teaching that involves, that is teaching merely versus that role of teaching and exercising authority. Um, the, so in other words, the way I have thought about this up to this time is I would be willing to have a woman stand here in front of you teaching. I would feel that I, as one of the overseers of this group, was taking responsibility for what it is she was saying. On the other hand, we have we have in this group, we, we have roughly just sort of because this is the way things tend to happen. I mean, without having some tight ecclesiology here, we have roughly, we have elders and we have deacons. We have a board that is responsible for the group as a whole, legally responsible, but basically, I mean, that board seems to me to be the kind of people who ought to be on 
in the position of being elders, of being responsible for the life of the group and what's taught here and so on. On the other hand, we have a steering committee, which is a group of men and women who come together to help work out you know, how are we doing the potlucks and are we going to have uh, group things that we do together and, you know, that sort of thing. So we, we have roughly that kind of organization here. And I feel comfortable with the fact that there are women involved in the, on the steering committee and, I mean, comfortable with, I don't mean that in a condescending way, I think that's the way it ought to be. Men and women ought to be involved in that group, as I understand it right now. And likewise, on the board of elders, we do not have women, and at this point, my understanding of things would be, I would not, uh, I would not think that was a good idea. Now, I want to make another qualification to that, though, which is, that I think the Bible puts the importance of the truth and the centrality of the gospel above secondary issues like this. What I mean is that it's not that, that there, is, there is this rule that says, oh no, a woman, a woman could never do anything like that. She's not fit to do anything like that. That's not at all what the Bible is getting at. We have to talk about the next couple of verses here, though, don't we? Um, in a church situation, I have often thought, in a church situation, if the male leadership is leading the group astray, there comes a point at which it would be incumbent on any woman to stand up and say, this is wrong, this is not the gospel, this is a perversion of the gospel, and if you're not going to say so, then I am. It's, it's not that the Bible is saying that, that women have no have no right to speak on these things, as I understand it. It's that when things are functioning as they ought to function best on all fronts, then the men would be in that position of leadership and they would be taking that leadership and exercising it in a godly way. And men and women together would be serving the, the needs of the church in various ways. That's how I would picture that. Now, I'm sorry to just punt on the next two verses, but they are so hard to know what to do with. I can tell you some of the options that are there and where we tentatively landed the last time we looked at this. It says, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Adam being first created and then Eve... I think I can see what's going on there because this is a repetition of the argument that Paul made in 1 Corinthians. We saw that. What was the significance of Adam being made first? Adam was made first, he was given a responsibility, and Eve was made to be a helper uh, corresponding to him, one, one of his own kind. And we talked last week about helper does not imply a demeaning sort of thing. He has an important th job to fulfill, and she has an important job to fulfill as well in helping that job get done. But Paul's argument was it's one way and not the other. The man was made and sh first, and she was made to be the helper. She wasn't made first, and he was made to be the helper. That's his argument in 1 Corinthians, as I understand it. And so I think that's what he's appealing to here as well. But what does he mean when he says it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression? That's very hard. What we know as we look at Genesis is um, we do see Adam is the one who is told that they're not to eat of, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that Eve is deceived by the serpent, is seduced into eating the fruit. And then we have just this cryptic statement. And she gave to her husband and he ate it too. Why did he eat it? We know why she ate it. We have the story told about how the serpent seduces her and what she's thinking. You know, it looks good. It's desirable to make one wise. 
I know that God said not to, but I want it. It looks good. It's going to do something good for me, so I'm going to go for it. We don't know why Adam did it, because it doesn't say why Adam did it. It just says, she gave to him and he ate. Adam is not described as having been seduced into doing this by the lies of the serpent the way the woman was. But we don't know. Is it just shorthand because he went through the same thing, but it just didn't bother to describe it? Or did he do it for another reason? And many, many, many people have speculated over what... Let me say speculated. Have tried to see, does the text, does the story as it's told, give us enough information to understand what's going on with Adam in that spot? And many have proposed, because of what Paul says here, one way of understanding it is, Eve was genuinely deceived as to what the implications of what she was going to do were. Adam was not deceived. He understood what was about to happen, but he did it anyway. That's one one line of interpretation that's taken. And in that line, then people say, well, why, why did Adam do it? Well, maybe because he didn't want to be alone. He knew, you know, if she rebelled and suffered the consequences, then he would be alone again, and he didn't want to do that, or something like that. That's one line that you can take. In that case, then, we have to understand what's the significance of her being deceived but not him, if that's the way we understand it. And people usually go from that, there's a difference in the nature of men and women, and somehow women are more gullible, women are more inclined to... I, I don't, you hear different people describe what that might be. And here's where I, I always run up against a wall. It's not that I'm unwilling to take that direction in understanding this. I mean, I want to know, we all ought to be willing to see what Paul thinks about the human condition and where we all stand. It's just when I come to this picture of women being more gullible than men that I keep bumping into my experience, which seems to suggest to me that we're about equally gullible when it comes to this kind of stuff. I just... I'm very serious when I say that. I mean, I could I could look at examples where I could think of women being naive and gullible where men were not, but then I can turn around and think of examples that go the other way. And it seems to me, you look in a marriage situation, that it is often the case that is the wife who is the hard-headed realist in particular situations, and it's the husband who's spinning fantasies about what's going on with stuff. I mean, it's just true, isn't it? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, isn't, isn't that the way things work? I, yeah, it just seems to me that that's the way it is. So I don't see how, I don't understand, I don't understand how that kind of argumentation, if that's the line that Paul is taking, I don't understand his point. I don't see what it is about women that, in that sense, that, that is different from men, that makes men more qualified to be the guys in charge. So that one, I can't quite follow that line. I, if that's where he's going, I don't get it yet. I don't understand what his argument is. Jack has proposed a way of understanding this that is, it's brilliant. It's, it solves a lot of problems. And the only problem I have with it is that it involves bringing into the text a huge piece of Paul's argument that he didn't actually make. And and can that happen? Yeah, that can happen. You just everybody has their own meter on how big a chunk of the argument that Paul didn't make are you willing to stick in before you think maybe I'm just sticking it in there and it wasn't there to begin with. You know what I mean? I mean there there comes this point where you wonder if he had meant that, wouldn't he have said that? But here's, here's Jack's proposal for what's going on here, which is interesting, I think. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That's the argument that says that Adam is the one who is given the responsibility, not Eve. She's the helper. He's the one who has the ultimate responsibility for this task. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. <laughs> 
The piece of the argument that, that Jack is saying needs to be supplied is, look, Paul's talking about the responsibility. Adam is the one who was created first. He has the responsibility. And yet, Eve is the one who fell into transgression. That is, she's the one who first ate from the apple. She's the one who listened to the serpent. She's the one who took it. I said apple, it doesn't say apple, it's the fruit. Um, who takes the fruit and eats of it. And then she gives to Adam. Adam had the responsibility, and yet Eve is the one who first messed up. Of the two of them, she's the one who went first. And yet Adam had the responsibility. So the hidden part of the argument that Paul doesn't make, Jack proposes, is Adam had the responsibility. She's the one who went first, though. She's the one who was deceived. But who gets the rap? Who is it that has the responsibility for the fall of mankind. And Paul would, and Jack would say, well, look around in Romans. What does Paul say? Adam. It was in Adam we fell. Even though Eve is the one who did it first, it's in Adam we fell. Why does Paul say Adam is the one who did this? Because it was his responsibility. He is the one who was given the task. Eve was given to help him so she was personally responsible for her own downfall, but the responsibility for keeping humankind on the right track belonged to Adam. That's, that's, Paul, that's Paul's hidden assumption in what's being said here. That's Jack's argument. And so the reason that women shouldn't be having authority over men is for the same reason that we see in the in the creation account, she's the one who did it, but he's the one who has the responsibility for it. Authority and responsibility go together. The responsibility rests with Adam, not with Eve, in the ultimate sense. And so the men are the ones who ought to have the responsibility for the life of the group. That's thus, at least in years past, that's what Jack has argued from that. Um, it's, it's good. I mean, that's a really clever way of dealing with the argument here. I don't know. I like it. Uh, but I'm, like I say, I'm the conservative one. Give me another five years, I'll be on board with it probably, but I'm still thinking about it. We have that last statement about women shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Um, that's a really tough one as well. There are several options for what Paul might be made, saying here. One thing, he's just referred to the woman being deceived. You may remember that the result of the woman being deceived was a curse that was put on women having to do with childbearing. That you, God greatly increased the pain of childbearing and you will bring forth children in sorrow. Um, so it's possible by, by the childbearing that he has in mind here, that he's talking about the childbearing that, that became painful and difficult and fallen in this world because of, because of woman's fall. But they will nonetheless, even though the consequences of, this, of the fall have come upon them, still they can be saved, not by childbearing, but saved by faith and love and sanctity with, with um, self-restraint. It has here, sophrosune. Um, that it is through, it is in the context of a life where they are facing the consequences of a difficult childbirth and so on, um, the, there is still a salvation that can be gained for them. In other words, the curse is not irredeemable. Others have argued that we should see it rather the bearing of children as being kind of the, a, a picture of the sphere in which women 
by nature, obviously it is the women who have children and not men. That is the in the arena of their lives, in the arena where they are doing what women do. They can be saved if they continue in faith and love. Again, the contrast being you do not have to grab power. You do not have to be in control. You do not have to be the one in authority in order to be personally saved and and find fulfillment. Your, the issue is not whether you have power. The issue is whether you have faith and uh, love and sanctity. That's the issue. The important issue for you as a person is, am I following God in faith, not have I got the upper hand? That would be, in a nutshell, kind of Paul's exhortation to them there. Okay, well, I've run us out of time. There are a lot of things to talk about, but I'm not done yet with the, some of the passages that we need to talk about. What I'd like to do is come back next week, finish up. I'm going to try to keep it short next week, finish up the passages that are left to talk about, make my final comments on how it all works, and then I'd like to leave plenty of time for questions and comments and stuff next week. Okay? And I'm available here if you want to talk about anything. But... Um, and if you're not going to be here next week and you have questions that you th- would like me to address next week, you can bring them up. Sorry to run so long. This is complicated stuff. So uh, we'll try to finish this up next time, and then we will be done with it. Done, finished. This topic is going to be dropped, and we'll move on to something else.